Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we go on a world-class mountain backpacking adventure that circles a massive mountain lake. For over more than a week, we'll hike more than 165 miles. But a good portion of this trail is not in a remote wilderness, but instead dips in and out of one of the busiest resort areas of the western United States. So on some days, you might even be able to grab pizza and a beer along the trail, if that's your thing. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Tahoe Rim Trail around Lake Tahoe in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California and Nevada. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for joining me. Feel free to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with any ideas for future episodes or any other feedback, really. Let's start with our walking the walk segment. This is where we give a shout out to listeners who have hiked a trail after listening to an episode about it and were inspired to hike that trail from the show. So I want to mention listener Steven Steiner who hiked the Rota Vicentina in Portugal, which we covered in episode 10. Stephen was motivated by that episode to go out and hike the trail and recently got back from Portugal. Stephen and his 15-year-old daughter hiked the traditional four-day route that we talked about on the show. He reports that it's some of the most stunning scenery he's ever seen. And he said he was trying to think of something similar to the Rota Vicentina in the United States, And the only area that was remotely similar in his mind was the Monterey Peninsula here in Northern California, except that the Monterey Peninsula is much more developed here than the Rota. He says that the Rota is just nature and that the small villages and hotels and restaurants are all really delightful. Overall, he thought the Rota Vicentina is really a hidden gem that is going to get more and more popular. So there you have it. Steven Steiner hiked the road to Vicentina after hearing about it on the show. I really appreciate him letting me know that. And if you have hiked a trail after hearing about it on the show or after being inspired by an episode to hike a trail, even if you'd already heard of it before, don't hesitate to reach out to me and tell me about it. And I'd love to feature you in this Walking the Walk segment. Before we jump into the show, I want to tell you about an exciting special offer from our sponsor, Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore for the month of May 2023, and I think even starting on April 30th, if I can get the show out by then, Outdoor Herbivore is offering a special Trails Worth Hiking meal package that includes essentially the meals that I love and that I usually take with me when I go backpacking. And that includes three different meals. The meals are the chickpea sesame zeti, the blackened quinoa, and the lemongrass Thai curry. As I said, these are all meals that I eat frequently when I go backpacking. And if I have a three-night trip, it's most likely that I'm going to eat those three meals over those three nights. Outdoor Herbivore is offering all three of those meals at a 20% discount 
You don't have to enter a discount code to get your 20% discount on the Trailsworth Hiking meal package. Just go to outdoorherbivore.com and order the package, and it is 20% discounted to the regular price for those three meals. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You can click straight through from the show notes if you'd like. This is double the discount that we normally get for Trailsworth Hiking listeners of 10% from Outdoor Herbivore. If you happen to be listening to this episode after the month of May 2023, you can still, of course, get our 10% discount for Trailsworth Hiking listeners on any on anything that you'd like to order. And the discount code for that is TWH10P, Trailsworth Hiking 10%. But for this month only, Outdoor Herbivore is offering a 20% discount for Trailsworth Hiking listeners on the special Trailsworth Hiking meal package designed by yours truly. In addition, there may be a little bonus item that ends up in these packages. I'm still working on that, but I've just ordered some Trailsworth Hiking stickers, our first swag for the show. So I don't know. I may try to get those over to Kim at Outdoor Herbivore so she can include those with the packages, but I'm not sure if that's going to work out yet. In any event, as you know, Outdoor Herbivore makes great vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. And as I always say, you don't have to be a vegetarian or a vegan to love these meals. They're very filling, have lots of calories for a hungry hiker. They include high quality ingredients and they're packaged very conveniently so that they can be filled with hot water and sealed on the trail. Your dinner is ready after only 10 minutes of putting in the hot water. Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, now let's jump into the show. On this episode, my good friend and good friend of the show, Tony Wong, joins me to talk about our hike on the Tahoe Rim Trail in 2009. Yep, 2009. It's been a while since we did this trail, but it was a great hike. And it was really the first really big hike, the first 100 mile plus trail that Tony and I had hiked together. So we had a lot of fun talking about it and reminiscing about this trail. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation. The Lake Tahoe area, which borders California and Nevada in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the eastern part of California, are a mountain range and an area that I really love. It's really my home mountain range and where I grew up going. I have an uncle, my uncle Larry, that I actually mentioned on the last episode, that lived in the Tahoe area in Incline Village when I was a kid. He doesn't live there anymore, but did at the time. And so pretty much every winter, we would go there to go skiing at the ski resorts in the area, and we would stay with my uncle. And so I have a lot of fond memories of the Lake Tahoe area. And I went there a few times in the summer, too, as a kid, though mostly in the winter, I have to say. So this is kind of a special place for me, and hiking this hike was special because of that. Let's talk about Lake Tahoe. So for those who don't know, Lake Tahoe is a massive alpine lake as I said, on the border of California and Nevada in the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's the largest alpine lake in North America. In the United States, its volume of water is only exceeded by the volume of water in the Great Lakes in the Midwest. Lake Tahoe is the second deepest lake in the United States, behind Crater Lake, Oregon. It is 1,645 feet deep at its deepest, which is about 500 meters. For context, that is deeper than the Empire State Building is tall. 
As a result of its depth, the lake never completely freezes over. And also as a result of the massive depth and volume of water here, the water is purer than even distilled water you would buy in the store. Lake Tahoe is 22 miles by 12 miles in size, which is about 35 kilometers by 20 kilometers, and has 72 miles or 116 kilometers of shoreline. It is so far across the lake to the opposite shore that the opposite shore can be below the horizon. The lake is two-thirds in California and one-third in Nevada. It was supposed to end up entirely in California, I think, at the time that the borders between the states were drawn, but there was a mapping error by explorer John C. Fremont that carried forward somehow and resulted in the lake being split between the two states. There are more than 60 inlet streams that go into Lake Tahoe, but the Truckee River is the lake's only outlet. And the Truckee flows toward Reno, not west toward the Sacramento and San Francisco area, which is something that I didn't appreciate when I was younger because it's on the sort of northwest shore of the lake where the Truckee River comes out, but it curves around pretty quickly and starts heading east. So it comes out at Tahoe City, which I don't think of as the eastern part of the lake. It's more the northern part of the lake. Interestingly, only about one-third of the water that disappears from the lake goes out of the lake via the Truckee River. The rest actually disappears by evaporation. The lake is at 6,223 feet in elevation, or almost 1,900 meters in elevation above sea level, so more than a mile high. The lake has been there for about 2 million years. It was formed by faulting, so it is not a caldera, not volcanic. And California continues to be formed by faulting and earthquakes. The Lake Tahoe area was originally a center of Washoe people's culture. Actually, the name Lake Tahoe is a Washoe word that is either an adjective that means the lake, or it could also mean edge of the lake. I'm not sure which. I've seen both in the research I did. But in any event, it was originally Da-au-ga, so I guess if you say that kind of quickly, Daoga, it sounds a little bit like Tahoe. I don't know. But somehow that got translated into being called Tahoe. We'll get to that in a minute. The Washoe people have been in the area for at least 2,000 years. But recently, a mummy and petroglyphs have been found in the area that are much older. And the mummy is dated at almost 10,000 years old. And some of the petroglyphs may be even older than that. So there have been people in the area for quite a long time. The Washoe had different groups that had different traditional summer campsites along the lake. They would spend time at the lake seasonally, I guess a lot like people today do. Washoe mythology had a creature called Ong, who was a giant man-eating bird that lived in the lake. So the story goes that Ong was so large and powerful that its wing beats could bend the trees Though Ong was eventually killed by a man the bird had captured and taken to its nest. The captured man threw a bunch of arrowheads in the bird's mouth and was able to escape. As a result of Ong's rage, a storm went all night, but by morning the bird was dead. Although Ong hasn't been seen since then, these days there are supposed sightings of Tahoe Tessie. 
which is some sort of lake creature that may be a cousin of Loch Ness's Nessie. Today, the Washoe people still do live in the area. There are 1,500 approximately members enrolled in the Washoe tribe today. As I mentioned, John C. Fremont had something to do with which state, or actually which states, Lake Tahoe ended up in. He was the first European-American to see Lake Tahoe in 1844. We've talked about John C. Fremont on prior episodes. I believe we talked about him on episode five about the California Riding and Hiking Trail in Joshua Tree. And we may have talked about him on other episodes as well. But he had a big influence on the West and had a big influence here as he was the first European to see Lake Tahoe. As I mentioned, the lake has had different names over time. And in the first couple of decades after Europeans found the lake, there were lots of name changes, which I won't go through the history of that. But eventually there was a Department of the Interior map maker who was working with a reporter from the Sacramento Union newspaper, and they came up with the name Lake Tahoe. But even that name had controversy for a while. Mark Twain didn't like the name. As you may know, Mark Twain lived in the Virginia City area close to Lake Tahoe. He was a newspaper reporter there, and that was where he got his start as a writer. So the history of Lake Tahoe after Europeans found the lake is really a history of a struggle between development and conservation. In 1848 and 1849, there was the California Gold Rush, which brought a lot of people through the area. In 1859, the Comstock Lode was found in Virginia City, and that was silver mining. And the Comstock Lode finding in particular brought a lot of deforestation to the Lake Tahoe area. There was heavy logging to build infrastructure for the mines and for homes. Then in 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad came through. This also had a detrimental impact on the environment. The area has always been kind of a resort area. Resorts were there from early on and have multiplied over the years. Tahoe City, which is the main town on the North Shore, was formed in 1864 as a resort community. In 1888, conservationist John Muir, who we've also talked about in prior episodes, came to the area. By then, the timber had been largely depleted. The railroad had arrived, and even the native cutthroat trout population had been mostly depleted. The devastation that Muir saw when he came to the area inspired him to create the Sierra Club, which is a conservation organization that thrives even today. For quite a while, Muir tried to make the Lake Tahoe area a national park, but failed in that endeavor. Although he was successful in spurring the creation of Tahoe National Forest Reserve in 1899. And the Forest Service, once it was in the area, bought and protected land for decades, constantly expanding its reach. In addition, both the states of California and Nevada established a number of state parks in the area. There are 11 in the region today. So as a result of all this, even though the area is a highly developed resort area, more than 80% of the land is publicly protected. The 1920s saw the rise of the automobile, and that brought more people and more tourist development. But the real boom in the Lake Tahoe area came after World War II. In the 1950s, the Nevada side of the lake started developing casinos. 
there was a national law that had been put in place that prevented casinos being anywhere except Nevada at the time. Nevada had had legal casinos since 1931. The next big change, though, may have been even bigger than the addition of casinos, and that was the really improbable selection of what is today called Olympic Valley, but was then called Squaw Valley, as the site for the 1960 Winter Olympics. At the time, this was a very small ski resort that had only one chairlift. But the arrival of the Olympics brought a huge skiing boom to the area. And today there are 23 ski resorts in the Lake Tahoe area. 12 of them are downhill resorts, and 11 of those are cross-country skiing resorts. So from 1960 to 1980, there was a huge boom in development and population. This brought all sorts of issues and problems, one of which was what to do with all the sewage that was developing, and eventually a utility company for getting the sewage out of the area was created and some pipelines were built to remove sewage from the basin. Even to today, serious conservation efforts around the area persist. If you live in Northern California, you're familiar with the ubiquitous Keep Tahoe Blue bumper stickers which are created by the League to Save Lake Tahoe. And the problem they're trying to address is that the lake has become more, I guess we could call it polluted. The lake has become less crystal clear blue over the years as sediment and algae have affected the deep blue color of the lake. Although sediment is the primary problem with the color, there are other problems as well. There was a recent effort to clean up trash from the lake and divers pulled out 25,000 pounds of trash. And that was from an organization called Clean Up the Lake. Today, Lake Tahoe has 50,000 year-round residents in the area, but 15 million visitors a year. Let me say that again. 50,000 people live there, but there are 15 million tourists that come there every year. The traffic to and from and in the basin in the summer and the winter is legendary. Essentially, Tahoe is the mountain resort for the Bay Area. It's hard to overstate the importance of Tahoe to a lot of people in the Bay Area. For a lot of people who don't camp or backpack, Tahoe is the Sierra Nevada. Tahoe is the mountains. Tahoe is the wilderness. Tahoe is the lake, and Tahoe is skiing in the winter. I admit, when I was younger, that was me. I didn't go to Yosemite until I was an adult. A lot of people I know have a house or condo in Tahoe that they visit regularly and have never been to Yosemite, Sequoia, or Kings Canyon National Parks. In some ways, Tahoe has become the place that has been sacrificed to the masses. And I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, it inspires a lot of people to feel closer to nature. On the other hand, you don't feel you've really left the Bay Area at all when you go to Tahoe in some ways. For example, you have to wait a long time for tables at restaurants. You have to lock your car and keep your valuables out of sight. Accommodations are expensive. And as I mentioned, you have to sit in horrible traffic to get there or to get home. That said, the Tahoe Rim Trail does feel a bit removed from all of the tourist culture of the lake itself. It dips in and out of the developed parts of Tahoe, but mostly stays out of it. You do see more people on the trail than on most Western United States backpacking trips, but that just makes it more like hiking in Europe, where you might dip in and out of towns on a regular basis. 
So while all the people and the traffic can be frustrating, I do think the Tahoe Rim Trail is really worth it and is a unique experience in the United States. The trail itself was proposed by Glenn Hampton, a recreation officer of the Lake Tahoe Basin Management Unit of the National Forest Service in 1978. And construction began in 1984. The trail was completed, though, in 2001, almost entirely through volunteer efforts. There were more than 200,000 volunteer hours to build the trail. And in 2003, a good portion of the trail, about 100 miles of it, was designated a National Recreation Trail, which gives it certain special protection that we've talked about on prior episodes. Not the entire trail, though, because part of the trail actually overlaps with the Pacific Crest Trail, which already has federal protection. So thinking about the area a little bit, this is in the northern Sierra Nevada, which is a beautiful mountainous region, but it's less high in altitude and less severe in incline than some of the granite landscapes of Yosemite, Kings Canyon, and Sequoia National Parks. So I think of it as sort of a gentler part of the Sierra than the southern parts of the Sierra that are more jagged and severe. As far as flora and fauna goes, there are approximately 17 million trees in the basin today. They consist primarily of Jeffrey and Ponderosa pine, lodgepole, sugar pine, as well as incense cedar, white fir, and red fir. There are a lot of the same mammals you find throughout the Sierra, definitely lots of bear and deer, coyotes, squirrels. There are beavers, mountain lions, porcupines, raccoons, and marmots. There are a variety of birds as well. The western tanager, the dark-eyed junco, yellow-headed blackbird, as well as mallard ducks, Canada goose, Stellar's jay, bald eagle, red-tailed hawk, hairy woodpecker, and even seagulls. Yes, seagulls, the same ones that you see at ocean beaches, hang out on the beaches of Lake Tahoe. All right. So with that background, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tony Wong reminiscing about our hike on the Tahoe Rim Trail. Tony Wong, welcome back to the show. It has been quite a while. How you been, my friend? Yeah, thank you for having me back again. You're not sick of me, apparently. Um, I still keep going hiking with you, so I must not be too sick of you. Glutton for punishment. <laughs> um, so it's been a while since you've been on the show, but it has been even longer, a lot longer, since we did the hike that we're going to be talking about today, the Tahoe Rim Trail. So let me ask you a question. Do you remember 2009? Uh, I remember uh, some of it there, certainly. <laughs> it, it's, I, I feel much older. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Out of shape. What do you remember about 2009? <laughs> the Tahoe Rim Trail specifically or? Anything. Anything, anything that far back in life. I, I remember it was, I think it was our training trip for taking on the John Muir Trail. And we did it, I believe, two years before we did the John Muir Trail. Yeah, this was an attempt to see if we could handle a really big trail. And it was for uh, a resupply which we really hadn't done. Yep. And I believe that the Tahoe Rim Trail gave us that opportunity to have nine days over 100 miles. 
with an easy bailout because of the proximity of the trail to uh, civilization or towns. Well, that's good that you remember why we were doing this hike. Let me help you remember a few things just to put this in context of where the world was at the time. So in 2009, the world was coming out of the financial crisis, the Great Recession. Do you remember that? 2008. Yes. cratered. So in 2009, also, Barack Obama was inaugurated as the 44th president of the United States, the first black president of the United States. Lula was president of Brazil. Later, he went to jail for corruption, was later absolved and released, and now is president of Brazil again, 14 years later. <laughs> so, <laughs> so some things don't change that much. We started this hike on July 2nd, 2009. Michael Jackson died on June 25th, 2009, a week before. Wow, we're old. <laughs> <laughs> a gallon of gas cost $2.73 at the time. This is something you'll find interesting. There was a pandemic that year, the swine flu. It turned out to be a cute little pandemic compared to what would come a decade later. But uh, there was a pandemic that year. There was this new technology called the smartphone that was taking off. There were these new things called apps that everyone was using on their phones. And Facebook and Twitter were becoming global phenomenon. Google's Android operating system started in 2009. That was the first year that they had Android phones. Instagram did not yet exist in 2009. <laughs> so there were no Instagrammers out there taking pictures of the Tahoe Rim Trail to post online immediately. That didn't come around until October 2010. And WhatsApp had just launched in January 2009. So the, the app that everyone communicates with internationally. All right. But on July 2nd, 2009, Jeremy Pendry, Tony Wong, Cameron Kennedy, and Jay Wilkerson set out to hike the Tahoe Rim Trail. And one other thing to mention that has changed, sadly, is that Jay Wilkerson, one of our hiking partners on this trip and on many other trips, is no longer with us. So you and I recently learned that he had passed away in May of 2022. So I want to stop and say a bit about Jay. First, he was a beast of a man. This is a big dude. Jay was over six feet. I don't even know if he was 6'4", 6'3", 6'2", whatever it was. He was a big man, built like a truck. And that guy hiked harder and faster than anyone I've ever met. He had kind of a hurry up and wait style that suited his sort of long stride and, and strength. If you remember, he would often hike ahead of us and then be relaxing and sort of waiting by the time we got to a destination. I think his style of hiking just sort of full out fast is why the four of us hiked so far each day on this trail. We really didn't have any other option when hiking with Jay. But his fast style did lend itself to some peculiar habits that most of us couldn't and didn't want to emulate. <laughs> he liked to hike an hour or so in the morning and then set up and cook breakfast. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> Ray Jardine style, I think. Oh, is that where he got that from? It's a, it's a Ray Jardine thing. Yeah, it's the idea is you just pack up quick and go while it's cold. You're generating heat, right? So, And then you stop after some period of time and you have breakfast on the trail. Which for him worked because he hiked so hard and fast. I think for us, we sort of needed to keep a sort of all day steady mule like pace to cover the same ground. Jay also liked to set up his tent in the middle of the afternoon when it was the hottest out 
and take a nap before finishing the day of hiking, which, you know, the deer and the bears do that. They're pretty smart. They stay out of the heat. We were not that smart. We just kept hiking. But Jay liked to take a nap in the middle of the day, which was an interesting thing to be doing while you're hiking a big trail. For perspective, too, I mean, I believe he played professionally one season with the, uh, the Rams and was a rugby player in Europe for a number of years. This guy was supremely fit and could easily, I think, walk four miles an hour and just leave us in the dust. Yes, you're correct. The Jay had a pretty cool background. He was a football player. He grew up in Huntington Beach, I believe, in Southern California, in Orange County, played linebacker at Fresno State University. And then, as you mentioned, he played for a bit in the NFL. He played on the Los Angeles Rams practice squad in trying to make the NFL team. Um, but after ultimately, you know, he didn't make the NFL team, he ended up playing professional rugby for a long time. When we met Jay, those days were behind him. We met Jay as a suburban dad and an avid backpacker, and he actually lived in the same town that I live in. He had hiked some pretty big hikes in the Sierra Nevada, like the John Muir Trail and several other sort of big routes that he had created going across the Sierra Nevada. Tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think we first met Jay through the Backpacking Light website, where Jay was very active in the forums for many, many years and always offering advice to help other hikers out who had questions. Is that how we first came in contact yeah, with him? We met him through the BPL or Backpacking Light websites. Yeah, the forums and probably one of the gatherings that, that happened uh, later on with the Backpacking Light members. And yes, I was going to say that I think when, when we all started the first annual gathering of gear geeks, the GGG as we called it, which was for those of us who were involved with the Backpacking Light website, was a Northern California get-together for people from the website to actually meet in person and go backpacking together and, and hang out together. And that was a, a trip that we did for about, I don't know, at least 10 years, I think. And the very first one, I believe that may be where we first met Jay and I think Cameron as well. Yeah, I think it was with the Stenson Beach, right? Well, just north of there. It was in Point Reyes. Point Reyes. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. So the first trip was Point Reyes. And I think that's where we met Jay. And we ended up doing a number of hikes with Jay over the years. For example, I hiked the Grand Canyon of the Tuolumne with Jay and with Cameron and a couple of other people. And that was a crazy trip one June where the water was really high and the Tuolumne was really dangerous. And then after coming out of the Tuolumne, we got lost in the snow several times. And I don't regret missing that trip. <laughs> <laughs> no, you made the smart decision. Although in my memory, it was a fantastic trip because it was so challenging in so many ways. But that was with Jay. I also remember hiking to Lake Vernon above Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite with Jay. I think you were on that trip. Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, I think Was Cameron with us? Yes, too? Cameron was there too. Cameron was puking, I think, on that one. Yes, yes, I remember Most that. Most trips he was doing. <laughs> I also remember a crazy day hike on Mount Diablo that we did from Walnut Creek, from one of the gates, all the way up to the top and then back and then to Jay's house. And that's like a 24-mile day hike. And I think it was something like 97 degrees Fahrenheit by the time we got back down. I totally bonked out. I was dying on the way back. Uh, there was a water tank I think I leaned my head against and just had trouble moving. It was just brutal for me. Yeah. I think it was brutal for all of us. But the big one with Jay for us was the Tahoe Rim Trail. And that's what we're here to talk about today. 
So I'll just say uh, cheers to Jay Wilkerson and thanks for all the great hikes. And this episode is for you. All right. So let's talk about the Tahoe Rim Trail. So what time of year is the time to do this hike? This is pretty much a summer mountain hike, right? Yeah, I'd probably say because of the snow levels, it kind of retard, quote unquote, retards the seasons. Uh, I'm thinking, again, maybe July, September, uh, August, September, kind of that range. I think that's kind of the Sierras in general. Yeah, so we started this in early July and there was still some snow on the passes, but it was passable. It wasn't too difficult. And I wouldn't try it much sooner than that. I don't think before July would have been doable in most years. Um, but I think you're right, summer and then probably early fall. You could probably get away with October if it hasn't snowed yet. Also, just I think if you did it sooner with the snow melt and such, you'd probably deal with a lot more mosquitoes too. That's true. So waiting is kind of a good thing. And I think for gear, this is pretty much standard three-season mountain backpacking gear. And for old time's sake, I'll talk about a little bit about the primary gear I use because I don't use much of this gear anymore, although some of it I still do. I had an MLD, a Mountain Laurel Design Super Light Bivy. I had a homemade bug screen that hung over it to give me some extra room. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> it didn't really work very well. <laughs> I, I understand the concept. You just had a stick and you're using our hiking poles to have it cover you like a cake net. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Just over your hat. Just over your hat. <laughs> I had a Go Light quilt for my sleeping bag. I had the MLD Exodus frameless pack. And that one was a truly frameless where it had nothing in it. And I think we used the uh, Gossamer gear sleeping pads to sort of give it some stability. Foam pads, torso pad plus one eighth inch uh, thin light pad, full length pad. The suggestion of comfort. <laughs> suggestion of comfort is <laughs> generous. We basically slept on nothing. And I also was using an Esbit stove which now I'm I'm lazy in my old age and I use purely a canister stove at this point. So Esbit is the little solid fuel and you would take forever trying to light it with a lighter and then you had your five minutes to hurry up and get your water boiled before it went out. World War II technology. Essentially. And I still use an MLD pack a good portion of the time, although it's not my only pack these days, but the one I have now has a little bit more framing to it has a carbon fiber frame that really does help a lot. But yeah, that was a great pack back then. What about you? Any Anything you remember about gear that's changed in these days? Yeah, I was using a Golite Jam 2 pack, which was frameless. You know, the Mountain World Design Exodus, I'm using that with the inflatable pad to give it some more structure. The Jam 2 was probably a little lighter than what I have now, which is about 17 ounces a little more narrow, frankly. Uh, I was using the, yeah, like you, the torso pad from Gossamer Gear. That's about three, a half inch thick and three sections just for your torso. The eight, one eighth inch full length pad. And I would take the Jam 2 pack and put it under my legs because it had a little bit of foam in the back and again, some insulation. I was using the Mountain Laurel Designs Soul Bivy, which is an event bag, which I just stopped using last year. And I was using a canister stove, Pocket Rocket. I think it was what I was using. I wasn't using Esbit. Oh, really? Using, okay. And now I've gone back to that. But I have the Pocket. I just bought the Pocket Rocket 2 Pro or something like that. Okay. 
so we, you know, we were using pretty lightweight gear at the time. And I think we still use pretty lightweight gear, but I think lightweight gear has evolved where there's a little bit more comfort with the modern lightweight gear. As far as navigation, there's a good Tom Harrison map that covers the Tahoe area and includes the entire Tahoe Rim Trail on one map, which is great. The TahoeRimTrail.org website is a really great website to get information on the trail, and you can go over each section and plan out how you're going to do the trail. So I highly recommend that. There's also the Tahoe Rim Trail book by Tim Hauserman, which is really good for sort of planning the hike generally, but it's a little bit big to be a book that you bring along with you. Um, as we'll get to, uh, mine eventually got stolen. <laughs> stolen? I don't remember that. Oh, it was in the car. Yes, it was in the car. <laughs> All right, we'll get to that. To get to this trail, you could fly into Sacramento or Reno, or probably the two closest big airports. Uh, or you could drive from the Bay Area same day if you if you are in the Bay Area or you live in the Bay Area. As far as other things to do and see, there's a lot to do and see in Lake Tahoe. It's a big resort area, very busy area. And if you plan to stay there before or after the trip, I would definitely make reservations for accommodations. There's a lot of people there in the summer and it fills up. I think one thing I would mention about this hike sort of generally in that vein is that this is a wilderness hike, but it's kind of mixed with popping in and out of civilization. And as you mentioned before, you know, that gives you an easy bailout if you are concerned about safety and you're, for example, if you're hiking alone, but it's something to expect so that you're not going to be in complete wilderness in this hike. You're going to come across day hikers and mountain bikers and cross roads now and then. I would say it's kind of a mix between American wilderness backpacking and European style trekking without the great mountain huts that they have in Europe. So, you know, you're doing all that, but you're, you're sleeping in a tent. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's really one of the great appeals of the trail itself is that it allows you to feel like you're out there, but you are relatively close to civilization. I mean, it truly is a, a multi-use trail. Sometimes I think with our horses, mountain bikers, uh, trail runners, day hikers. So you, you come across a lot. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because we had such light gear. I think some people didn't know what to make of us and that's happened to us before on the trail, but particularly on this trail where there were a lot of day hikers. And I remember, I think it was a German woman. I won't try to do her accent, but she said something about like, well, you don't have enough stuff in your pack. And we said, well, sure we do. We have everything we need. And she said, but you don't have enough food. <laughs> yeah, it was very cute. Because yeah. just looking at our, you know, ultralight was relatively, I'll call it newish at that time. Yeah. So people would look at our pack and go, no, you're out here for a day. Like, there, there's no way. Yeah. You're going to do nine days. Well, no way. What I thought was funny and what we didn't tell her is basically all we had in our pack was food. We didn't have much else. <laughs> <laughs> The essentials. Right. As far as permits go, the only place you need a permit on this hike is through the Desolation Wilderness part, which is on the west side of Lake Tahoe. And it's the only part of this trail that sort of gets away from the lake where you don't have a view of the lake, which is a beautiful wilderness that everyone should backpack at some point. There's a lot of great stuff there. And because of that, it gets fairly crowded and because of its proximity to Tahoe. So there is a need to get a permit there, but you can get a thru-hiker permit which is a different permit than the standard permit to go to Desolation Wilderness. And I can't believe this is still how they do it, but according to the website for the trail, it says that you need to call the Lake Tahoe Basin Management Unit Forest Service Office to get your thru-hiker permit. 
They say you only need to call seven to 10 days before, but with all the logistics to go into this for most people, including taking time off from work and maybe even flying to the area, um, I would probably call sooner. (laughs) One other thing to note as far as permits and logistics is that campfires are now prohibited on the trail, probably because of all the recent drought and fires in California. But at the time we did this trail, we had a number of campfires along the hike. And number of fires. I'm guessing probably now you can't use esbit or even alcohol stoves, nothing open flame. Probably not. So canister stoves are probably your, your main option. For distance, this trail is about 165 miles plus or minus, which is about 265 kilometers. And for us, the trail took nine days, which let's be honest, that was too fast for even us, I think at the time, or maybe not, we enjoyed it, but it was, it was pretty fast and it was pretty aggressive and pretty exhausting. I would probably take a few more days, not just because I'm a lot older now, but if I just wanted to enjoy the trail a little bit more and we had to hike some really big days to make it happen in that amount of time. But I do think part of that was it allowed us to do it in just one week off from work, right? It was easy for us to take a week off and do the whole trail. And at that time, because I suspect we were also very type A pushing each other a little bit. It, it's uh, We wanted to get those miles in. It's just we were pushing ourselves. That's yeah. kind of an early stage of our hiking relationship. <laughs> yeah, maybe we were trying to impress each other or outdo each other or something like that. No, I just don't want to be the person left behind to die. That's all. Survival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on the Tahoe Rim Trail website, they have a 165-mile club where people can confirm that they finished the trail and your name goes on a list. I am number 885 on the list. It says I finished on July 10th, 2009. I don't see your name on the list, so maybe you never finished the trail. Maybe we left you. I'm just too cheap to do it. I, or there's a certificate involved money. I just, I'm just happy to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was free. Uh, then I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. As far as shuttling and resupplies and all of those types of things, this is, a, of course, a loop hike, so no need to shuttle. But let's mention now that it is a good idea to hide your valuables out of sight in your car. Uh, Tony, what happened when we got back to your car at the end? It was a very interesting homecoming or welcome back to civilization. Uh, Someone had smashed the driver's side window on the car, my car, and and I think three other cars. And it was a smash and grab. So uh, they popped the trunk and grabbed whatever they could. And Back when we arrived back, finished the trip, there was a ranger who was kind of sweeping up some glass and said, yeah, the night before, four cars got hit and stuff got stolen. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, including Cameron's cell phone and his wallet and keys. And for me, um, some clothes, which not a big deal in the Tahoe Rim Trail book (laughs) for some reason. Although I think some of Cameron's stuff was found. It's like they had tossed it out the window on some highway or something. And a lot of his stuff was found later. Yeah. I, I, do you remember he made a phone call to his phone and someone picked up and he was just talking lots of smack? Yeah. But then I think he found out later he had called the wrong number. That was classic. He was so pissed, which I understand. And he called his own number to see who would answer. And it turned out that he had dialed it wrong. And he was really yes, upset. Chewed out this poor person. Yeah. <laughs> In the parking lot. Right. <laughs> I won't repeat what he said. <laughs> All right. There was some profanity. Yeah. So <laughs> the, 
but I, I would say at least be at least make it so your car is not appealing for valuables to be you know visible or, or bags or backpacks or anything like that or park at a more remote trailhead. There are several highways that go into Lake Tahoe, basically all sides of the lake, there are highways going into it. And if you're on one of the major highways, um, you are likely to be in an area where people who might want to look for valuables in a car could come upon. And I think the problem we had is we started at Tahoe Meadows and that highway that we were along goes to Reno, which is the biggest city nearby. So it was really the easiest route to a big city, to the spot we were hiking from. If we had been smarter, we might have thought of that and park somewhere that was on a more remote highway or a highway that didn't go to a major destination like that. In any event, that's one thing to be aware of. Another thing is resupply, because this is obviously a hike where you're not going to carry food for the entire trip. And there are a few options there. There are a couple of markets along the way. There's one near the Heavenly Valley area that we'll get into as we go through the hike called the Tramway Market. And then there's also Tahoe City that the hike goes through where there's a, a regular full grocery store. And we also had the luxury of my retired father. Oh, yes. Rusty. Yes. His dog. And what? Uh, his dog. Is it Venga? Corta. Corta. Yes. His dog, Corta. Yes. Corta, sadly, is no longer with us. But yeah, so my dad, who was retired, kept boxes that we had dropped at his place. And he met us at Echo Summit, which was roughly halfway through our hike. And uh, we resupplied there, which was really convenient. So if you have a friend uh, who lives in the Tahoe area or the Bay Area and is willing to go up and drop some st stuff off, you could do that. Or you could hide a cache of food in a bear can along the trail, like we have done on other trips. Or you could resupply at the markets. Another thing to consider on this trail is water. The eastern side of the trail, the Nevada side, is the in the rain shadow of the mountains and much drier than the western side. And so there's a few days there where water can be hard to come by. And we ended up caching water, I think it's called Brockway or Brockaway Summit. So we cached water on one particular highway crossing that allowed us to have easy access to water before our final day of the hike. So it was after Tahoe City, kind of, if it's a clock, about the 10 to 11 o'clock position. And what can you say about that process, about caching water and how that worked and, and how you would go about doing that? Sure. Uh, how I would go about it. Well, we bought one gallon jugs. I think we might have had four or so. Uh, we printed out a, a, a label, putting the date of the starting point of our trip and just said, you know, warning. This is a water cache for hikers. Taking this could endanger our lives. And we put the starting and ending date of our trip, and we set it off the trail to the side. I think we even covered up a little, a little bit of branches, maybe just out of the way. We might have even taken a photograph of what it looked like, so if we had to reference it. Yeah, and I think that's the right way to do it, which is to put it where it's easy to find, but not too easy to find. You want it to be close to the trailhead so you can find it. You don't want to make it so hard to find that you won't be able to find it again. Um, but you also don't want to make it obvious to other people. And also, it is good to put a label with your name and the dates and the importance of it on there so that if people do come across it, they don't take it. We taped it over so if it rained on it, that the, the paper wouldn't get ruined. So just protecting it. I think it's also important to bring a pen. Uh, we've done this on other trips as well as this one. If there was excess water, we'd cross it off and just say free water. We left it on the trail. So, you know, help yourself. 
Right. Because actually Jay, as we'll talk about, Jay didn't finish the hike with us because he had done that part of the trail on a previous trip. And so we did have extra water when we got to our water cache and we left some of it. And then we would leave it visible. And as you said, cross off our label and say it's free to take uh, so that other hikers could use it. Okay. Why don't we go through the hike? You ready for this? Yeah, sure. Memory lane. All right. So your post on Backpacking Light about our hike that you pulled up and and sent to me in preparation for this show was over 400 pages, including photos and script. I'm not going to let you go through 400 pages of our hike, (laughs) but let's try to go through it in at least an abbreviated (laughs) highlight sort of way. Yes. I can't (laughs) believe I posted 413 photos or whatever pages of stuff. I had a lot of free time. (laughs) All right. So we started, I guess, let me back up and say, you can pretty much start this hike anywhere you want along the loop. And there may be some strategic reasons to start in certain places, but unlike a lot of loop hikes where there may be only one entrance or maybe two entrances to the area, there really are highways here spread out roughly a day apart in pretty much all the sections except the west side in the Desolation Wilderness section where, you know, you are in a wilderness area where there aren't roads for, I don't know, 35, 40 miles or something like that. But for the rest of this hike, it's really up to you, I think, how you want to space it out and where you want to put, you know, your your resupply, if you just, you know, or how you decide to manage that. Does that sound right? No, I agree. Just because of its proximity, I I don't, I don't know if I'd want to start maybe at desolation for the reasons you're talking. It's just by then you're deep into it. So maybe have some experience a few days before that. Okay. So I'll go through our itinerary and keep in mind again, that we just picked a starting point that seemed to work for us. And also that the, the days that we took the hike, this was a fairly aggressive pace for a lot of hikers. If you're a solo through hiker in your 20s, our pace was probably slow and you could probably go a lot faster. But I think for most people hiking with friends, our pace was a bit aggressive. And again, I I don't think I would be doing this pace today. So we started in Tahoe Meadows and we parked the car there. And that's sort of near Incline Village in the Nevada portion of the hike. I should mention that Lake Tahoe itself is split between California and Nevada. And so is the hike, therefore. We hiked 14 miles that day we actually drove up that same day. So we drove up the morning and we got started about 1130 on the trail. We did actually have some thunderstorms on the first day. And I think that turned out to be pretty much it for the entire hike. And it was pretty much beautiful after that. Yeah, that was the only weather we had. It was kind of amazing. So we hiked 14 miles to Marlette Peak Campground. And this is a backpacker campground in Lake Tahoe, Nevada State Park. And it's really the only place on the trail, I think, where you have to camp in a designated backpacker campground site, where you actually have a numbered site with a picnic table and all of that. It was the only campground I remember on the whole trip. I mean, a lot of it was side of the trail type of stuff after that, I believe. So I remember in that campground, we met a couple. The couple said, oh, are you hiking the Tahoe Rim Trail too? And we said, yeah. They said, oh, great. Well, we'll probably see you tomorrow. And we all looked at each other after they walked away from our campsite. And we were like, we'll never see them again. <laughs> I remember that. A little bit arrogant on our part. But we, yeah, we just, well, they were carrying traditional gear. And we were just, you know, flying or cocky thinking, oh, yeah, we're just we're going to pound out the miles. You're dust. We're never going to see you again. 
Yeah, we saw them as roadkill, and I'm pretty sure we never did see them again. We didn't. All right. <laughs> okay, and then day two. Well, let me ask first, anything else about day one that you remember that's worth talking about? My recollections going, going through my photos and stuff, the, the campsite actually had bottled water, oddly enough. I think firewood. Yeah, that's right. Bottled water, firewood, and a pit toilet, I think. Okay, so that's a real campground, essentially, which is a nice feature to have. Mm -hmm. And it's even though it's a backpacker campground. All right. Our, on day two, we went from Marlette Peak Campground and we ended up camping in a dry camp in a wash about a mile short of Kingsbury Grade North. And that's about a 21 mile day. So let me mention that dry camping is something we have done from time to time. We did a couple of times on this trip. And I do think it's a good option in certain circumstances. And basically what you're doing is you're getting to whatever the last water source is on your map. But instead of stopping there earlier in the day, you load up on as much water as you'll need for the evening and for the next morning. And you just keep hiking until you're done hiking. And then you find a spot that looks comfortable to camp and you do it and you don't need any additional water. So uh, that was what we did that day. So we ended up in a, a dry camp spot. We did fill up. I think our last spot to fill up was Spooner Lake. And um, that was the most fresh, clean water we saw. Right, Tony? You count the deer standing in the water taking a squat that we could see <laughs> after we filled up water. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. We got there and we thought, oh, beautiful lake, nice water. We've started filling up. And then we watched the deer come in and take a pee right in the middle of the lake. Right. <laughs> And my recollection, too, is that I was carrying four to five liters of water. And that, in a frameless pack, not fun. That extra weight, you feel it. That was after Spooner, after we filled up until we got to camp? Yeah. I don't remember how long we went from Spooner to our camp. So maybe that was a brutal few hours on the after that. I'm not sure. I don't think it was huge, but it, it, I, I remember it. it was just a lot of excess weight. You need it. Well, I wouldn't say excess, extra weight. Yeah, but it, it allowed us to do a dry camp, which gives you that flexibility to camp wherever you feel like it. Yeah. In this case, I think it's just the necessity you need to, right? The water is life. So if there's no water, you just... So I think the takeaway is make sure you have extra storage capacity. to Be able to take well, extra water. Good point. Because there are some dry sections on this trail, it does make sense to have the capacity, even if most of the time you don't need to use it. That might mean taking an extra water bottle that holds another liter or two. All right. Our third day was July 4th. So big holiday here in the U.S., our Independence Day. And we were about a mile short of Kingsbury grade north, and we went all the way to Star Lake. And let me comment a little bit there, a few things. One is the Kingsbury grade north part of the trail. At the time, there was only a road. So you basically came off the trail and you had to walk a road in what was a housing development for the Heavenly Valley Ski Resort. And you had to walk three miles, I believe, on the road before you got back to trail. Um, if you look at the map today online of the trail, there is a, a workaround where you can stay on only trail if you'd like to. Although I have to tell you, looking at that workaround, it seems to be longer and I could see someone deciding to stay on the road anyway, because it might be a quicker way to get to the next section. Yeah, my recollection is it was a little surreal going through the homes, but my feet were really hurting because I was wearing trail runners, which do not have a lot of cushion. 
So walking on hard asphalt, I was happy to be back on the trail. The benefit for all this is we, we were able to go to uh, the Fox and Hound little tramway market. We had some food. Yeah, we stopped at the Fox and Hound pub for breakfast and we had a big breakfast with beers. Yes. And <laughs> and then there's a tramway market right there next door, I think. And we were able to fill up on a bunch of uh, high quality junk food to pack into our packs. I think we got restocked up on water too. Yeah, I would imagine we did. And I think we had planned to resupply at this market. So we had not carried a ton of food up to that point. And that's another thing you can do when you have a trip like this, where there are going to be grocery stores at particular intervals. You can plan for the fact that you're going to hit a grocery store and just take as much food as you need up until that point and then resupply at the grocery store, um, which we did here. We did that a little bit at Echo Lake. Uh, We did that also in Tahoe City. And so there are a few opportunities along this trail to you know, buy some things at a market. Like beer. Like beer, yes. I also have in my notes that we bought fresh lunches there. In other words, the, the restaurant made to-go lunches for us that we bought. And that allowed us to have a nice fresh lunch along the trail. It was a nice way to break up the, mon- I don't want to say monotony, just, you know, you're having fresh fruit versus dried bars or you know, dehydrated or freeze-dried food. So having a market, it's just this little extra joy, right? Something fresh. If you want an orange or whatever, uh, it's like Christmas every day. (laughs) It does feel like that when you get to a market, when you've been eating freeze-dried food and snack bars up to that point. We stopped fairly early this day, about 3.30 in the afternoon. And according to my notes, that was the earliest we stopped on the entire trip. And we took some time to clean up at Star Lake and swim in the lake and relax And I remember this evening very well as just a really enjoyable evening sitting by a big campfire and watching the fireworks down in the far distance at South Lake Tahoe for the 4th of July celebration while we were off in the wilderness at camp by a lake, but where we could still see them. Yeah, my recollection was, I don't know if we were on a ridge or just on, if you went to one side of the campsite, you could look down and see the city and the fireworks. You walk the other way, you wouldn't even know there was a city down there, out middle nowhere. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, it was cool. All right. So that was day three, ending at Star Lake. Day four, we went from Star Lake to Showers Lake, which is about 21 miles. Man, Tony, we were just pumping out the miles on these days. I could not pull this off today. I'm telling you that right now. It's too much testosterone. There's four <laughs> guys, something to try to prove to themselves. and you know, Just going for it. <laughs> Speaking of just going for it and people that can do big mileage, this is the day where we connected at the very end of our day with the PCT, with the Pacific Crest Trail, which is the trail that goes all the way from the Mexican border to the Canadian border. And we started coming across PCT hikers because we timed it, I think by accident, really, at a time when these hikers were coming through this area. Because if you think of the way the PCT works, they all generally start around the same time. So it has a little bit of this sort of traveling circus effect where the, the most of the people are kind of bunched up over you know a period of time and coming through the same area. And we hit it right when the PCT people were coming through. So we met quite a few. And Showers Lake, where we camped, there were a number of PCT hikers camped there. But it was kind of cool to, to meet some of these people. Very humbling. I mean, at that point, you're thinking, uh, I was kind of thinking, oh, we're kind of hot stuff. We're just kind of pulling off these miles. We're doing really well. 
these people are doing like 25, 35 miles a day, carrying heavier and just running us down. We were the roadkill. Yeah, we became the roadkill. And at this point, they had hiked about 1,100 miles, I believe, by the time they had gotten to where we were. And we had hiked, I don't know, 50 miles. <laughs> like we, hadn't go- <laughs> we were still kind of getting our feet wet, and they were well into a major, major hike. I remember on that section, there was, there was a young woman going solo, kind of wearing maybe a dress or almost a sari, and she was behind us. And she ran us down. I admit I was trying to speed up a little bit to try to say, oh, we're going to stay ahead. She just crushed us. <laughs> it was quite humbling. Yeah. Quite yeah. humbling. And do you remember uh, that you met twins that had trail names? And that was something that that's something that PCT hikers tend to have, which is a name that they go by while they're on the trail, sort of leave their regular identity behind and become a separate identity on the trail. And I think their names were, do you remember what their names were? Danger Snake and Time Cop. Yes, Time Cop and Danger Snake. So if they're out there, (laughs) uh, cheers to Time Cop and Danger Snake. They were twins who were hiking the trail together that we ran into then. And you, I think you talked quite a bit with them. I think they had done the AT, uh, Appalachian Trail, and then kind of got the through hiker bug and decided, oh, let's do the PCT just for giggles. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we camped at Showers Lake and the next day, day five, we went from Showers Lake to Heather Lake, which was a little bit more than 18 miles. And this was the day that we came out of the uh, sort of South side of Lake Tahoe crossed highway 50 and met my dad where we got our resupply boxes So we're on day five of nine. So literally hit him right in the middle of the trip, which is good timing. The resupply, we could split our food kind of in half and also supplementing at the grocery stores that were along the way. So it made it so we really didn't have to carry all that much food at any one time. And it also allowed us to decide what to take out of our resupply boxes, meaning we didn't have to take everything because we could just give it back to my dad and he could keep what was left over. Um, But it was nice to have that luxury of a resupply in the middle of the hike with someone we knew. Yeah. Well, so he had his little camper uh, truck, or I guess his truck, the camper on. I was able to actually uh, shave. That's right. <laughs> Just getting, a little, getting a little bit uh, stubbly there. After we left my dad and said goodbye and kept moving, we hiked to the Echo Chalet, uh, which is at Echo Lake. There's a little grocery store and they have a deli where you can grab lunch and some additional groceries. For us at the time, groceries meant buying more beer to carry with us. Uh, (laughs) You know, that was nice to have another fresh lunch. Uh, So we had a fresh resupply, a fresh lunch. We were able to buy some cold beers and- Ice cream. And ice cream, yes. It was the middle of the day. It's It, I believe, is what it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. A Northern California classic, the It's It ice cream sandwich, which is a like a, traditionally a mint chip ice cream inside of two big oatmeal cookies, essentially. Covered in chocolate. Oh, right. Chocolate on the outside. Yes. That's what makes it encases it there. Time Cop and Danger uh, Snake were, were also at the general store. We met them there. Jay was talking to them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Jay was having a conversation about other hikes they had done. 
then we moved on from there and headed up into the Desolation Wilderness. There is actually a ferry you can take across Echo Lake, but I think our timing was such that it didn't work out where we could take it. And also we probably would have refused uh, to cut any miles out of our trip because we were masochistic at the time. Now that you mentioned ferry and we didn't take it, I was going to be mad at you. Then I realized oh, my younger self would be stupid and say, no, I must suffer. So my son, Justin, and I hiked the other direction through the Desolation Wilderness on a trip a few years after this when he was, I think he was nine years old or something like that. And we, we did take the ferry. We were going the other direction. We took the ferry to get to the Echo Chalet to finish our trip where my dad picked us up. Um, so the ferry, I did use the ferry once and it was a very convenient thing to have to not have to walk along the entire lake for a couple of miles at the end of your hike. All right. And then we ended up at a place called Heather Lake. Not a lot of camping there, but there was enough. There's this huge lake, which is not a natural lake before that in the Desolation Wilderness. I'm blanking on the name. Is it Desolation Lake? or is it- Lake Aloha. That's it. Lake Aloha. That's it. It's amazing. Very pretty, but it's it's actually a dammed lake. And I'm only mentioning that because I think it it's partly the reason why there aren't great campsites. It's not a natural landscape. And as a result, there's just not a lot of places to camp. Heather Lake was the first place that we found with a place to camp. But even there, there weren't many sites. I would recommend for most people in this area to go to Susie Lake, which is the next lake down and a couple lakes more. It's got some good campsites. And um, we saw quite a few PCT hikers camp there. And I think I've seen other people camp there on other trips I've been through that area on. That's another option in that area. Aloha Lake, we, we took a break there. I think we got water. That is Gorgeous. I mean, you have the sculpted granite in the background, some peaks with snow. And I don't know if it's a bit of a bowl again, but the, the, the water is down in court. So you have a lot of granite shores. There wasn't, yeah, there wasn't a lot of dirt. There was mud and granite shores to deal with. So it just didn't make for a good camping spot unless you wanted to, you know, at least to pitch a tent. So if you wanted to lay out, you can certainly. Yeah, but very pretty, as you mentioned. All right. Our next day is an interesting one. I mean, they're all interesting and we've had some good stuff to talk about so far, but our next day had one of our more interesting moments where we made kind of a mistake. So our next day is from Heather Lake to Richardson Lake, and that is 17 trail miles. But how many miles did we hike that day, Tony? 19 and a half. I think we did bonus 2.1 extra miles or something like that. That was one direction. We went off, we went the wrong direction. We ended up doing an extra 4.2 miles because we had to go back to the trail. So it was 2.1 miles in the wrong direction and then 2.1 miles back. So we ended up hiking more than 21 miles again <laughs> by mistake. And what we did is we got to Middle Velma Lake, a lake that I've camped at several times on other trips. And we took a wrong turn because there are several trails that go off of Middle Velma. And we ended up going the wrong direction and not realizing it until we got to a river crossing that was facing the wrong direction on the map. And as much as I wanted to make it fit the map, you know how you do that sometimes where you, you're supposed to be somewhere <laughs> and you're like trying to make the map fit where you are. But at the end of the day, you have to come to the sad realization that you're in the wrong place. And that's what we did. It was a quiet angry 40 minutes that went by really quick on the walk back i remember we were just all silently just marching uh, doing the switchbacks up angry right all of us just fuming in our heads all of us but before we knew it we were back at the top it went by fast. it did yeah very quiet and angry (laughs) and then we got to richardson lake which is a nice place to camp and you know you can't do that these days but we did have a nice campfire on this trip 
And one thing that was really interesting there that I remember is that there were a group of PCT hikers who were singing. I think they were sort of a like an acapella group, actually, who sang together. And they were actually hiking the PCT for a charity for disabled military veterans. And what was also interesting is they had never done really much of any backpacking before setting out to hike the PCT. And we talked to them a bit, and it was nice to have their music while we were in camp. They were camped just a little ways from us, so we were able to talk to them a bit. And I still have a pretty vivid memory about asking them about the PCT, because then and now the PCT has been sort of a a dream of mine. And do you remember what they told me? Uh, They don't recommend it. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) what they said. (laughs) They were 1,100 miles in, and they were basically like, this is hard. This sucks. I don't recommend it. But they were soldiering (laughs) on, and and they were going to continue going, and um, they added a little flavor to our evening for sure. I would not choose the PCT as my first camping or backpacking adventure. That's 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 bold. Yes, sure. it is. Yes. Yeah, I would probably start with a weekend trip instead of a 2,650-mile trip. That's just me, though. Learn as you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So after doing 21-plus miles when we meant to do 17, the next day we decided to take an easy break, right? think so. No, we didn't. We actually decided to do worse no? and we went 24 miles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not very logical, are we? No. No. Of course not. Why would we take it easy? For some perspective, uh, for non-Americans, I'm guessing that's in the neighborhood of about 40 kilometers. It was a pretty long day. I think I wrote down 23 miles. So it was somewhere between 23 and 24. And that was from Richardson Lake all the way to Tahoe City. And the reason we banged out all those miles is because we were able to get to civilization that day, which was Tahoe City. And I also remember that we got there by 4.30 in the afternoon. So we must have left. We were motivated. Beer and pizza. Beer and pizza. We were motivated. We had to leave early. And we banged it out. We got all the way to Tahoe City. And then we had a little debate about what we were going to do for the evening. Do you remember how that went? Also before that, wasn't that also the afternoon where either after lunch or something, Jay just kind of popped in his headphones and started hiking off and we we didn't see him for the rest of the day, right? Yeah, that's true. And he had done that and would do that in the future on other hikes, um, but hadn't really done that yet on this hike. And again, as we talked about, Jay just had such a faster pace than all of us that it made sense for him to hike ahead. Cameron and you and I are pretty similar in height, and so our strides are pretty similar, but Jay is just such a bigger guy that for him, hiking at our pace was probably painfully boring. Um, so he he went ahead that day, and also he was going to be leaving us because he had hiked the last part of the trail on a previous trip, and he was had to get home for family reasons, and his truck was parked in Tahoe City. So he was going to stay the night in Tahoe City, but then he was going to leave the next day. And so, yeah, that's true. Jay hiked ahead and we, I think, met up at a pizza place where we got beer and pizza. I remember having this weird sensation of feeling like I'd been in the wilderness too long because I couldn't figure out how to work the refrigerator door to get my beer. (laughs) It was just one of those moments where like pretty quickly you forget modern comforts, (laughs) even though, you know, it hadn't really been that long. But I just had this bizarre moment where I'm like, how does this open? And then you and Cameron and I were trying to decide whether we should continue on after refilling at the grocery store and camp in the wilderness, 
or whether we could actually get a motel room for the night and stay in Tahoe City. And I think part of it was funny about that was that Cameron had this sort of purist view of what a hike is, that you really need to be camping the whole time. And I had this view of, we walked over 100 miles to get here. We've earned it. We walked into this town. It's not like somebody gave us a ride here. And, you know, which proved to be my method of doing things later in future years when I've done hikes in, in Europe and, and the hike we did in Nepal, where it's perfectly fine, in my view, to stay in whatever accommodations are available if you've actually hiked to get there. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong. I mean, I can understand the viewpoint of being, you know, you want to stay on the trail the whole time, but that was awesome. I remember going into the room, there was a shower. Basically, I just kicked off my shoes and walked into the shower and just turned on the water. And just dirt, dust, and mud was just draining down me. It was so nice to be clean, but I was also very aware of just my clothing. I was so dirty. Yeah, so you you went into this, to be clear about what you're saying, you walked into the shower fully clothed. Yes, and I just said, you know what, I'm going to, you know, it's cut out the middleman. I'm going to wash this stuff and wear it. Just forget it. And uh, hot water was glorious. But I felt very dried out. There's weird things that I, I remember, like after 100 miles, because I've never done a trip like that, you know, this many long. My skin was just drying out and getting chafed. I had zip-off convertible pants. And underneath uh, where it connects, there was an extra flap of fabric. And it had chafed my inner thigh raw. And that's not something I would have known about unless you did 100 miles, right? Just that experience. I'd never done it before. Yeah, yeah. So it's those things that, it's one of those things that over time builds up that you don't know unless you're on a hike of that length of time can build up. And so where you might be less careful on a shorter hike about things about like, for example, what kind of underwear you're wearing or you know whether the shoes are perfect. Uh, on a longer hike, it can be a problem. And we can talk about this after we get through the, all the days. But for me, for example, I had a ton of blisters on this hike and my feet were a mess. And again, you and I hadn't done this kind of length at that time. We have done several long trips since then. But at this time, this was new to us. I think we had done a 70 mile trip like the High Sierra Trail a couple of years before, but we hadn't done a trip of this distance. And so little little things start to become a problem if they're not right. I also remember that evening that we got a nice uh, chance to go in the hot tub at the motel, which was perfect. Yes, I remember. <laughs> you were, I think that you guys were already there. I was maybe the last to get showered up, but I was walking with a bath towel around my, and underwear through the parking lots and sandals and probably people going, who is this homeless guy walking through here? Yeah. yeah. And it was, <laughs> and I should say, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Tahoe in the summer, it's not easy to find a place to stay, but you know, a motel, not the most preferred accommodations for most vacationers did have a room or had at least a couple rooms for the four of us. And that really worked out. So Looking for something like an old motel might be your best bet if you're showing up in a resort town. So we said goodbye to Jay. And the next day, you and Cameron and I set out to continue the hike. And this is now day eight of the trip. And we went from Tahoe City to about a mile or so past Brockway Summit, which is about 20 miles. So we go from a 23-mile day to a 20-mile day. After a 21-mile day the day before that, so we're basically on our third straight day of 20 miles plus. And this was the day that we had cached water at Brockway Summit. So we actually hiked 
19 miles all the way to Brockway Summit. And then we loaded up on water and we were able to dry camp again without much of a problem. Really, after we just got sufficiently away from the summit, from the road, um, we found the first great spot that was wide open and set up camp. Yeah, I kind of rem- I remember that. It was nice open space. It was just nice. It felt clean and yeah, it just felt good. And then our last day, day nine, July 10th, 2009, we went back to Tahoe Meadows, which was another 18 miles. So still a full day of hiking. And we staggered into the finish line, uh, only to be immediately jolted back into real life when we saw your car had been broken into, which we've already talked about. And then we drove into town for post-hike celebratory beers and tacos, if I remember correctly, before the drive home. Yeah. We were on Mount Rose, correct? Yeah. On the last day, we went through the Mount Rose, Mount Rose Wilderness. And your timing was impeccable. It was gorgeous. You... From Mount Rose, kind of a lot of, I don't know if Taos or rock and then single track trail, you had this view of the lake because you're at the northern part and all the, I'll say like springtime flowers, just because again, the snow kind of retards the season, full bloom. Yeah. Purples and reds and yellows. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, the wildflowers. We, we just got lucky. Good timing. Good planning. Yeah, I, you know, I had called ahead to make sure that they would um, make the, make sure the wildflowers are blooming for us. <laughs> Do you remember the father and son that we met almost to the parking lot to the end? Yes. So, yeah, they they <laughs> saw Cameron, and Cameron had been wearing a white was it Rail Riders shirt? Rail Riders shirt. It was a family though. That that the kid that that's the father. It was a family of four, yeah. father of two daughters and, and the mother. Yeah. And so Cameron's wearing a white shirt. And after nine days of hiking, his white shirt is basically brown. And Cameron, he's got long hair and some beard growth. And uh, I think kind of worried the father a little bit <laughs> when he saw us coming. And he sort of stood between his daughters and, and us. Oh, he saw Cameron, who was leading the way, and then <laughs> instinctively just stepped in front of his children, yeah. <laughs> his, his young daughters, yeah. to protect him from the scary mountain man. Yeah, Remember, he had a, he had a white golf visor. Yeah, early on in the trip, just a day or so in, he just threw stuff down. He had a little little ditty bag and poured it all out in the dirt. Found a needle and thread, had a camp towel, and just sewed it onto the back to create this little neck cover. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get it. He was kind of a scary mountain man guy. <laughs> she said his shirt was actually a few ounces heavier after the trip was done because of saturated dirt. That's right. He weighed it. Yes. That's funny. Even after you washed it, it was physically heavier. That is hilarious. And we also jokingly, <laughs> I mean, this might give you another full picture or a fuller picture of Cameron. We called him Yard Sale as his trail name because every time we had a break on the trail for like a snack or anything, his entire pack would end up opened up all over the ground. <laughs> there would be stuff right. everywhere like he was having a, you know, a garage sale for someone. I don't know. It was, he just definitely a, a fun person to hike with and an interesting character. Really enjoyed hiking with him on this trip, but that was a funny moment there uh, toward the end where just the accumulation of dirt, as you said, caused this father to instinctively uh, try to protect his children as we walked by. <laughs> Have we talked about how him going ultralight, but actually was heavier than his first backpacking trip? No, we haven't mentioned that, but that's a pretty funny story as well. Well, his first uh, backpacking trip, 
he didn't know it was a backpacking trip. He just had some friends, maybe he was in university. He says, oh, yeah, we're going to go on a camping trip for, you know, four days or so. And he's thinking it's car camping. So he went to the, the market, got some food. He had a paper bag. He had a wool blanket. And he showed up. And then his friends are like, wait, this is a backpacking trip. And he's like, okay, sure. <laughs> and he just, he just went. Yeah. I think he did say he might have got rained on and rolled up in the wool blanket like a burrito. Yeah. And just got it. He carried a paper bag for four days. Yeah, it's it's classic. He's the only guy who's ever, by going ultralight, had heavier equipment than his first trip. Yeah, <laughs> which was you know his first pack was a paper bag. <laughs> right yeah. now, what I was going back to is that at the very end of the trip, there was a father and son. They were day hikers. We were coming down. They were coming up. The father kind of looked at me and said, "Where are you from?" I happen to be Asians, but I said, yeah, "I'm from the East Bay." Then he asked, how tall is Mount Fuji? Like I would know this just off the top of my head. <laughs> but it was just kind of a funny moment going back into civilization. That's yeah, all. today they would call that moment actionable. <laughs> You'd sue somebody for that today. Uh, in 2009, it was, it was still pretty offensive. It was just, I mean, that is absurd. And uh, we won't dwell on it. But I get the idea where people, I mean, some people just don't have an experience interacting with other ethnicities, but it was a pretty sad statement to hear something like that. And I know you took it in stride and you still think it's kind of funny. I think a lot of people would not have reacted that way. I grew up in a predominantly white community without other minorities. So I, my, my life, I've been used to this. So I just take it in stride. <laughs> All right. Uh, I had forgotten that, but now that you say it, I do remember it. So Tony, looking back on this, why is this a trail that other people should consider hiking? Besides the fact that it's, again, it's still in the, I'd say the Sierras, the, the scenery is absolutely amazing. It's, I think, a great trip that I will say safely allows you to do long distances, experience resupply with an option to bail out effectively at any time because your proximity to towns and civilization. So it makes it a good training trip, I think, again, why we chose it. And it has a variety of uh, challenges, you know, some dry camping, some very areas like desolation, very wet and beautiful, some that are more forested and some that are more rocky and spartan. So you get a lot of variety. I know for me, I grew up going to Tahoe quite a bit, um, mostly in the winter to go skiing, but even in the summer sometimes. And I had lots of memories of it. And I've always said that there is no better way to get to know an area than to see it on foot. And for me, that's what this was. This was like a sort of throwback to my childhood and a way to really explore something that I had grown up with. And I also found it to be kind of bizarre, like almost like I was a secret agent, you know, like walking around this massive tourist destination, but walking through the forest and sort of occasionally popping in and out of the forest and not really being part of the regular tourist activities of the lake area of the resort kind of feel, but being sort of on the fringe of it, which I thought was kind of cool. And as you said, it's also an incredibly beautiful area, both with there's constant views of Lake Tahoe, which is just an astoundingly beautiful lake and the Desolation Wilderness section, which has its own, you know, sort of mountain granite beauty. Um, and as Cameron said to us at the time, it is also cool to walk around something you can see from space. 
Oh, yeah. I kind of joked, like, bitched at you or complained a bit, saying, you know what? This kind of sucks. I keep seeing the same lake everywhere we go. This is a terrible trip. <laughs> what about a special moment? Was there a special moment for you as you look back on this trip? I don't know. You know, I, I think a special moment, particularly going back through the photos, was early on in the trip on the eastern side, which was kind of dry, where we had a gorgeous, fiery, orange sunset. We were all sitting on the rocks and logs, just looking over the lake and the sun. It was just a, I call a perfect moment. You know, you were tired in a good way because you put in some good miles. You just had the satisfaction and you got to see the sunset with just all of us sitting there, not saying a word, just enjoying that beauty. I agree with that. That may have been on the night that was 4th of July. And for me, that night was the moment that sticks with me the most that I described earlier about seeing those fireworks off in the distance, but also being apart from it and being out in the wilderness while we're seeing that um, and sharing that moment with some good friends. And, and it's even more of a special moment now that one of those friends is gone because, you know, it's not something that can be repeated, that group of people in that spot. So for me, that was pretty cool. Is there anything you've learned or changed about how you do hiking or your gear or anything that this trip really taught you? Oddly, I think the takeaway, one of the big takeaways for me is just knowing that I could do big miles and long distances and just knowing, like I said, the chafing on my body. You know, I actually bring some zinc oxide cream to, for handling chafing. And I remember my fingers cracking bleeding in some cases because just the very dry air using Luco tape um, between my thumb and forefinger because that's where my hiking poles were. Just not self-care. I, a lot, I'll, I'll, going back to a lot of photos, a lot of us were doing a lot of foot care, self-care because the, with so many miles to go, you just absolutely have to take care of yourself. And that's funny that you say that because that's what I got out of this trip too. And I guess it's because for us, this was the first really long trip we had done as far as miles. And so for me, foot care was a big thing that came out of this because I was just struggling with blisters all the time on this trip. And I think you even filmed me popping blisters at times um, with a needle, yeah. with a hot needle. And so for me, this was an inspiration to really change what I was doing and be serious about foot care. And after this, for several years, I gradually went to barefoot shoes for all aspects of my life, not just hiking, so including trail runners, and it's what I still wear today. And one of the things that I've gotten from that is that it has given my feet enormous strength in the same way that you have muscles in your hands. When you wear normal shoes, it really prevents you from developing those muscles in your feet, and it helped me to develop those muscles to go to less supportive shoes over time to get more strength and resilience in my feet. And it's really made a difference for me. And there were also a few other strategies that came out of this trip that I've still utilized. One is the particular shoes I buy have a very wide toe box and are a size bigger than my normal shoe. I do that because your feet swell over time when you're on a long hike. And you have to account for that. If you're going to be hiking for a week or more, your feet are going to grow in your shoe. They're going to flatten out and they're going to swell up. And you really have to make room for that or you're more likely to get blisters. Another thing I do is I bring multiple pairs of socks for a trip, usually three pretty lightweight running socks, but all different brands. 
And the reason I do that is I want to have a different rub on my feet and I try to change them like at lunch. I will change a pair of socks to a different pair or even sometimes at a break. That will give the first pair a chance to dry out and also gives my feet a new feel so they don't get too much of rubbing in the exact same way with like they had with the prior pair of socks. And so just rotating through different socks over the course of a trip can make a huge difference. The last thing that I do also now is I wear gaiters. I buy the inexpensive Dirty Girl Gaiters, great brand of gaiters made by a woman who's an ultra runner. And they really, really make a difference to keep rocks and pebbles and little dust out of your shoes. And that prevents you from starting to get a sort of, you know, oyster with a pearl kind of effect where you start really rubbing against a piece of rock that's in your foot and that creates a blister. So for me, it it inspired me to really take seriously personal care, foot care, you know, personal hygiene on the trail, that kind of thing. And to be honest, it's made a huge difference I think with maybe one exception, I don't think I've literally had a blister hiking since then, which is 14 years. And we hiked the John Muir Trail two years later, over 200 miles, and I had zero blisters. Um, So for me, this was a revolutionary change in my hiking life. I I haven't seen you blisters. I mean, the the Tahoe Rim Trail was a lot of foot problems and you've really dialed it in. I, I just haven't really, you've never had to use a hot needle to poke yourself to pop a blister. Not, I didn't really want to Not go through that again. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I agree with you. For me, what's always has worked is that I use the Injinji toe socks. Not necessarily the most durable. I'll burn a hole through the heel after a certain period of time disposable. But it works for me. And I, I've gone to the Ultra Lone Peak, sort of kind of flat drop shoe, but very wide toe box. And I, I wouldn't go back. So, Yeah wide toe box and sizing up uh, for me about half size is what I've done. And it, it, it works. So it sounds like you're actually coming to the same conclusions I came to and following similar strategies. Yeah. I just kind of live and learn. I've obviously I've, I've had trail runners, the innovates, which I did on the Jarmir trail, which has a midsole shank and how I kind of walk. Like if I had high heels, I'm a toe walker. I, I push that right through the sole of the shoe. I can't do that anymore. I can't wear anything for a shank in the middle just because of the weird way I walk being a toe walker. So. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that, Tony. We're gonna do the John Muir Trail episode <laughs> someday. And we'll get to your someday. we'll get to your shoe falling apart in the middle of a massive hike. <laughs> <laughs> I should tell you that Andy, my wife, when we were hiking a hundred mile trail this past summer in Scotland, the West Highland Way, which I did an episode on. She started having foot problems in the first couple of days. And the other couple we were hiking with, the woman uses in Jean G toe socks. And she gave Andy a pair. Andy wore them the rest of the trip and had no problems. And then went, got home and bought a bunch of them. And now she wears them practically every day and she loves them. So they can be for the person with the right foot structure that works with in Jean G's, they can work miracles. They don't fit my feet, but I have some pretty weird shapes in my feet that are from past injuries. Um, but for some people, they are revolutionary. It takes a little getting used to because you're wearing like a glove on your foot. Each toe is encapsulated, which is great for the rubbing, but it is a little weird to get adjusted to, which I have. But for some people, it's really weird. All right, Tony. I think we've exhausted the Tahoe Rim Trail. But while I have you, I've got a few more questions for you. What is either the next hike on your list or just give me a hike or two from your bucket list? Is there something out there that you really want to hike that you haven't hiked yet? 
Uh, I actually might be doing the uh, Camino in Spain. My my mother-in-law wants to do about 60 or 70 miles of that when she turns 70. That is cool. I don't know if I have the right name. It's the Camino. The Camino de Santiago. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm all, I want to do that. I mean, after doing our trip in Nepal, I'd like to do some more treks. I'd like to get out this year, this year, just um, take my wife. She's had some hip problems, but I, I also changed my setup calling following in your footstep. I went off the bivy. I have a tarp tent Aeon Lie 17 ounce one person tent. Um, I've got an Uber light inflatable mattress for, um, I got off the foam pad. I've changed and a pillow. I'm, I'm, a lot of my setup has changed, shelter and sleeping. Thinking about those changes, is there a particular piece of gear that you're really liking? Is You used that tent when we went on a hike this past uh, September, and it seemed to work out pretty well. I've been using the Bivy probably since 2008, and it's worked really well. But I got frustrated with one of our trips that we took back. It was Ruby Crest Trail or Ruby Ridge Crest Trail? Ruby Crest Trail, yeah, in Nevada. I got rained on because I and I was too lazy to put up the tarp. And I dragged it underneath the base of a tree trying to stay dry. And I was fighting off water getting in. And I had a one inch blow one inch blowhole on the zipper for most of that night. I was getting pissed at myself. And then for essentially one ounce heavier or even slightly lighter than my that setup that I had with tarp and bivy, I have a full shelter. I don't have to worry about headspace. It's just I wanted to move on to something else where I had more space and didn't have to worry about wet condensation on my sleeping bag, or I should say quilt. So I think that that that's kind of a new thing for me, especially for the weight. I'm like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. And I have switched, as you know, over the last several years from a bivy back to a tent, although I use, you know, a, a tent that's not freestanding, like the one you're talking about. I use the Z-Pax duplex which allows me to have two people in it. So with my son or my daughter or my wife, which I've done on all three of them at different trips, I've had each of them in there. And actually my father one time on a trip too. And, and also it's not that heavy for me to take solo. So it's only a few ounces heavier than the one you have, but allows room for two or one. 21 ounces and you have a palace. Yeah, exactly. It's a <laughs> palace for one person. So yeah, I've, I've gone that direction too. And I think the gear has gotten better, like you say, among ultralight gear so that, lightweight tents like that do basically match the performance for the weight of, you know, bivvies or exceed the performance considering that you have a fully enclosed tent. So yeah, that's cool. And that sounds like you are evolving a bit with your gear setup. One more question. If you were someone who's never done a hundred mile plus hike and thinking back now, you've done several of these. You did the hike with me in Nepal. We've done the John Muir trail together. We did the Tahoe rim trail together and we did a pretty significant section of the PCT together of about 135 miles. If someone's thinking about for the first time doing a hike of that distance, any thoughts about things that they should be thinking about? You know, they might have concerns or worries about trying to go that length of, of a hike at, in one go. What would you say to them? A couple of things. One, don't be afraid. If you can do, if you can do five days, seven days, I think you can be out there infinitely. Is it's wash, rinse, and repeat. You get it dialed in. Where's the water? Where's a good camping site? How do I pitch this right? I would say that just be mindful that the small things that are problematic can become bigger problems, like foot problems. You just deal with them immediately. Don't wait. For you and I, 
a minimalist mindset is important because when you're traveling those distances, the extra weight really becomes that burden. Now, I think for myself, my lightweight journey is how low could I could go and wait? I have one eighth inch pad. That's kind of the suggestion of comfort, right? Now I have an air mattress. I've added, I went as low as I could go. I added some weight in for comfort. I need a good night's sleep. I look at my system as simplicity. I don't really want to deal with a tarp anymore because that's like eight or nine guidelines. I want simplicity, efficiency, and some comfort. So I, I look at the, in a longer trip, how do I make it easier? What's efficient? Not just the weight. Yeah, that's good advice. I think I agree with everything you've just said, and we've talked about some of that already today. The one thing I would add to that is if somebody is considering doing a longer trip like that is to test it out on a smaller trip, is to get the exact system you plan to use on the longer trip and do a three or four day trip using exactly that system, exactly those shoes, those socks, uh, that pack. You know, Don't buy a bunch of new stuff that's lighter just because you want lighter stuff. And then the first time you use it is on you know, a 12 day hike with two resupplies. You don't wanna be doing that. So I think give it a go as a sample first and then go for it. You want no surprises on a long trip. You want your gear dialed in, no surprises. Oh, I'm gonna try something new. No and tested. Because when you're 50 miles or 80 miles out in the middle of nowhere, if there's a problem, that you don't want to find that out then. Yeah. And not only that, but you say no surprises. I think no surprises under your control. Like there will be surprises. Right, under your gear. <laughs> the weather yeah. will give you a surprise. The animals will give you a surprise. The, your body will give you surprises. I guess the idea is minimize those things or minimize the other surprises. Don't create your own problems exactly. so that you can deal with the ones that come at you anyway. Because as we've learned on a lot of trips, there's always something that goes wrong. There's always something that happens you didn't expect. You know, there's the trip that on the first night of camping on an eight-day trip that you and I did on the PCT, I left my spoon on a rock and I ended up eating using two tent stakes as chopsticks for several days until we came across somebody that had a plastic spork I could use that they got at Jack in the Box or Taco Bell or something. And, you know, and I was able to use that for a few more days until it cracked. But, you know, those kinds of things are going to happen. So I think you're absolutely right. Don't let it be surprises that you can control. Fix the things that, you know, make sure you've tested the gear you're going to use. And once you've tested that gear, you'll feel comfortable going out there. I think you got it. It's there, there's, a, there's going to be taking on a long adventure. There are always going to be these challenges, all right, from the weather to how your body reacts, possible small injuries. You don't want to have your gear, which you, I think you can control with experience and time of using it. Just avoid that variable. Yep. All right, Tony. Thank you for coming on the show. Great to talk to you about the Tahoe Rim Trail. And uh, I look forward to talking to you on a future show about the John Muir Trail. And I think we're also going to, I think we're going to do a gear episode at some point. We've talked about some of it here, but I think we should do that. I think people would enjoy that too. Sure. Gear geeking. <laughs> what you do when you're not hiking. Yep. All right, buddy. Good to talk to you. Thank you. You take care. So I hope Tony and I have inspired you to hike the Tahoe Rim Trail. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. Or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. 
If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go to a very different environment for an adventure with different sorts of challenges, where we'll hike more than 100 miles across an entire Caribbean island, bushwhacking our way through mountainous, rainy jungle, where you can camp or stay in local homes and hostels, meeting some very warm and welcoming local hosts along the way. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Waitakabuli National Trail on the island nation of Dominica. That's right, Dominica, not the Dominican Republic. Where is that, you ask? Well, you'll find out on the next episode. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.